0: Hi, this is Pastor Rob Stone from Duns Creek Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for listening to our weekly audio sermons podcast. Duns Creek Baptist Church is a community alive by grace and known by love. We long to be a force for good here in Putnam County, Florida. You can learn more about us on the web by visiting dunnscreekbaptist.org or visit us any Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. for worship. Now, please enjoy the message. Well, we are in our third week of a sermon series that we have started called This Is Not the End. We are spending these five weeks together studying Paul's very first letter in the New Testament. And it is not his first letter in terms of the way you read the Bible. It is his first letter chronologically. It was the first letter that he wrote, the earliest of his letters that we have recorded in the canon of Scripture. And we know that Paul had this very close relationship to the faith community in Thessalonica because he brought the gospel message to the people of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, and it was immediately received by the people, and they received this message gladly, but there was also a large amount of persecution that immediately rose up. So there were a bunch of people who immediately embraced the gospel message and a bunch of people who immediately fought against it. And the fighting against the gospel message, the persecution against the gospel message is ultimately what leads Paul and Silas to flee the city of Thessalonica, to flee the city in Macedonia. And so ultimately what ends up happening is that Paul is writing this letter, Paul is writing this letter to essentially catch up with the community and faith of Thessalonica to address their concerns about all the persecution they're facing and to address some of their larger concerns about what does the faithfulness of God mean? What does the promise of God look like in the face of this kind of persecution? And so one of the interesting things about Paul's two letters to the church in Thessalonica, both 1st first, first and 2nd Thess- Thessalonians in your Bible, is First and 2 Thessalonians have the clearest picture of what we would call Paul's eschatology. And what I mean when I say eschatology is it's Paul's view of how the end, God's ultimate return and the culmination of all things, how all of this will take place. It's, it's Paul's clearest picture of what the end is going to look like. And so I am saying to you today essentially what Paul is saying to the community in Thessalonica, which is this, this is not the end. You and I, you and I live simultaneous citizenships. We live simultaneous realities. You and I live as citizens of this world and citizens of heaven right now. And so we don't have to live as people who are full of fear about the end. We are people who live presently in the reality of eternity. We live as citizens of heaven here and now. And so while you and I may die, and while you and I may get to see the glorious return of Jesus, no matter which way you slice it, this is not the end. And so one of the things that we see in this kind of journey together through faith is where we've been the last two weeks. And so we talked in the first week about what it means for us to have a newsworthy faith. What it means to have the kind of faith that people would share about, that that the message would spread around the world of the kind of faith that we had of people who are not waiting on rescue to come, but people who are currently in the process of rescue. And last week, we saw this beautiful picture where Paul is writing to this faith-filled community that he loves. And he says, we, were, we, were so, we, we so loved you. We cared so much for you. You had become so precious to us that we were pleased not just to share the gospel, but our own lives we talked about that reality last week, that what this world is waiting on is not people that have some good information. The world is waiting on some people who would be willing to live transformed lives in the presence of others. Because for us, it's not enough to share information about Jesus. We've got to open up our lives and share the transformation rooted in Jesus. And so today, as we prepare to explore together chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, I want to point us to an ancient scripture first. Now, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these five books of the Bible or what was sometimes referred to as the Torah or the law of Moses. The law essentially dictated for most Jewish people how they lived their lives. And so it's important for us to understand where the language we're going to read today in Paul's letter, where it comes from. And so we hear this in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine you are to be holy to me because i the lord am holy and i have set you apart from the nations to be mine and so today as we enter chapter 3 or chapter or part 3 of this sermon series together i've entitled today's sermon stand firm and be different Stand firm and be different. If you have your Bibles with you, won't you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians? And if not, we'll of course have the scripture up on the screen. We're going to be reading today beginning in chapter 3, verse 6. Now what Paul has described at the beginning of chapter 3, <clears throat> excuse me, what Paul has described at the beginning of chapter 3 is how out of his love and care and concern for the church in Thessalonica, he essentially sent Timothy, when he felt like it was safe, he sent Timothy ultimately to check on the church in Thessalonica. And Paul is writing this letter right after Timothy has returned with an incredible news, with with great news about the faithfulness of the people. Excuse me. Hey, Jake, will you bring me my coffee that's up there? I appreciate it, sir. I've got a little frog in my throat. My wife keeps telling me not to eat them, but they're delicious. That's right. I appreciate it, sir. Mm, Thank you. Mm. Here we go. All right. So... Timothy has just returned with a great report of how faithful the people have been in Thessalonica. So we're going to begin reading in verse 6. But now, but now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction... We were encouraged about you through your faith. For now, we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith? Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another. And for everyone, just as we do for you, may he make your hearts blameless in holiness Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I want you to track this this beautiful prayer. Essentially, if you look at 1 Thessalonians, there's actually three prayers. The the whole book opens up with a prayer, and here at the end of chapter 3, there's a prayer, and then at the end of chapter 5, there's a prayer. And so there's kind of these book ending prayers of the book, and then right there in the middle, Paul is essentially saying, let me pray for you, and what I'm praying for you is a prayer of gratitude for all of the ways I am encouraged about what you're doing, but also I'm praying for you because I'm about to challenge you to go further. Let me pray a prayer of of recognition of all the things you're doing right, and let me also pray a prayer of challenge for what is yet come. Now, notice how he prays this prayer. And may the Lord cause you, may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love. Then may he make your hearts blameless in holiness. Understand what Paul is saying here in this essentially three verse prayer. In this three verse prayer, Paul is making it abundantly clear of the relationship that exists between our overflowing love and our holiness. This is what Paul is doing. He's he's not just saying it's right here in this prayer. He's actually drawing this correlation throughout the whole picture of God's story that we see in Scripture. He's drawing this correlation between everything we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, look, in Scripture, there is a direct relationship between our overflowing love and our holiness, Now, let's unpack that a little bit and understand why that is. Why is there a relationship between our love, our overflowing love, which would be another way of saying our love in action, and our holiness? How many of you know the oft-quoted scripture, God is love? God is love. Now, here's what's happening. Essentially, when you and I began our relationship with Jesus by faith in the resurrection of Christ, by recognition with our words that we have made him Lord of our lives, we have begun a relationship with Jesus. And in that relationship, God has given us the Holy Spirit or the very presence of God. And, he, and God has taken his presence and placed it within us And the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to transform us into the image of Jesus. So the work of the Holy Spirit in me and the work of the Holy Spirit in you, the work of the Holy Spirit in you watching online, is to transform you into the image of Jesus. Now, this is what I love so much. There's, there's a verse that everyone knows, John 3.16. And of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I, I love that. And it's the way that most of us have learned that scripture. But if you understand Greek language, what's actually being said in that verse is not for God so loved the world. The better way to understand what's being said in John 3.16 in English would be for us to read it this way. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. You see, we tend to think of love emotionally. We tend to think of love compartmentally. We tend to think of love as either a feeling we feel in our hearts or a thought we think in our minds But for God, love is always active. Love is always an action. Love is always a verb. And so it's when we read it as God loved us in this way, he gave his only son, what we're understanding in John 3.16 is not God had so much emotion for us that he did this. It's instead God giving us Jesus was the love of God. Here's a better way for us to understand it. Jesus Christ is the love of God in flesh. Jesus is the love of God. And the Holy Spirit is transforming you into the image of Jesus, which means the Holy Spirit is transforming us into love. So as you and I are transformed into love, into overflowing love, into love in action, it transforms us because we move into a greater and greater and greater degree of holiness because we move into looking more and more and more like Jesus. So Paul, in his first letter that we have recorded in Scripture, is telling a community of faith Here's what I want to happen. I want you to increase in love because when you increase in love, you will increase in holiness. Which means we've got to unpack what holiness means. So think about what we read together in Leviticus. What does God say? God says, I want you to be holy because I'm holy and I have set you apart. Another word that we use in the New Testament to to describe this idea of being set apart is the word sanctification. We are sanctified, which means we are set apart. We are are made holy. And, And holy tends to sound really lofty. In, in, in fairness, in the history of Christianity, we've, we've gotten it wrong sometimes because we've used the wrong language when we're talking about holiness. Here's really what's being talked about. God has set us apart. God has called us to be different from the world. God has called us to be different than the world. God has called you to be different than, than the community you live in. God has called you to be different than the people you go to school with. God has called you to be different than the people you work with. God has called you to be different than the people in your neighborhood. God has set you apart to be holy. He set you apart to be different. And this is where we struggle because we don't want to be different. Can we just admit it? We don't want to be different. We want to fit in. We want to fit in. And and there are so many ways for us as the church where this idea, this insecurity creeps in in all these different areas where we end up going, well, I just want to fit in. I want to be like everyone else. It's really our way of saying, please, please, please don't think I'm weird. Can I confess something to you? I'm really weird. I'm I'm really, really weird. Now, weirdness does not always equal holiness, as my wife will tell you about me any chance she gets. I'm weird. I'm not always holy. But we're afraid to be different because we don't want to be weird. And God has called us to be set apart. God has called us to be different And so, what we have to embrace, what we have to wrap our heads around, is this idea that from the very beginning, the gospel message is radically countercultural. From the very beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message of Jesus, is radically countercultural, which means if we really want to embrace the teachings of Jesus, it's going to require you to to take a stand on some things that are not going to make you popular in your group of friends. If we really want to be the people that God has called us to be, it's going to require you to live in such a way that looks radically different than your neighbors and classmates and co-workers. If we really want to be the people that Christ has called us to be, it might be very well make us outsiders in the country we live in, in the community we're a part of, it might make you an outsider in your own church. Because God has called us to be radically countercultural. So for the people of Thessalonica, for the people who lived in the Roman capital of Macedonia at the height of all the Greek mythological worship systems and all the Roman mythological worship systems, in in this place where most of the people worshipped their gods and worshipped the deities by going to temples and having relationships with temple prostitutes. This is what it meant to worship the deities in the Greek and Roman world. Suddenly, this message is coming about Jesus, and suddenly worship looks radically different for the people of Thessalonica than it does for their neighbors and classmates and coworkers. So when we jump into chapter 4, we've got to understand that what did different mean in Thessalonica? What does different mean in Thessalonica? Different in Thessalonica meant being a people that have a Christian sexual ethic, that have Christian sexual ethics, which was radically countercultural given the Roman and Greek world at the time. And so that's the impetus of what we're about to read in these verses. Additionally, then, my brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. It's Paul saying to the church in Thessalonica, here's God's will for you. Be set apart. Be different. Be different than what everyone else is doing. Be different from what the culture around you is doing. Be different from what the world around you is doing. Adopt God's way rather than the world's way. Now, what often happens for us is when we think about adopting God's way rather than the world's way, we make the world about us and them. But let's just be honest, we are part of the world. So what we're really saying is we've got to go with God's way rather than my way. You've got to go with God's way rather than your way. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness, and honor. Now I want you to to draw this this relationship here between what Paul is saying, because it would be really easy for me to, to, to launch into a sermon right now about all of the sexual ethics that the church has struggled with over the years. But I want us to understand what Paul is saying is a challenge to the church, It's not a challenge to the outside world. And so often as the church, what we have done is we have said, that's what they're struggling with out there. What Paul is saying is, guys, here's what we're struggling with right here. Here's what I'm struggling with and what you're struggling with. Why then should we adopt God's way rather than our way? Why then should we adopt God's plan? For a sexual ethic rather than our own? Why should we adopt God's plan for sexuality rather than our own? Because it's not about what we want or what we desire, it's about controlling our bodies in holiness and honor. Holiness and honor. As you grow in overflowing love, you will grow in holiness. So why do we adopt a Christian ethic of human sexuality? Because people matter to God. Human beings matter to God. Every man, woman, and child on the face of the world matters to God. So when I look at someone who has been created in the image of God, when I look at someone for whom Christ died and I see them as an object rather than as a human being of worth and value and dignity and honor. I'm not growing in holiness because I'm not growing in love. That's why As Paul goes on to verse 6 and 7, that's why we have to understand this. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness." I spent the first 12 years of my life in ministry ministering with and to college students. And so I spent the majority of my experience in ministry talking a lot about Christian sexual ethics. And so for those of you who don't understand where the rubber meets the road on this, let me me connect the dots for us and how we might understand that connection, that relationship between growing in love and growing in holiness. I do a lot of premarital counseling with people, and I do a lot of uh, counseling with couples who are thinking about marriage, thinking about if that's the right decision for them. And let me tell you this, um, it is not at all uncommon, not at all uncommon for couples, even couples who love Jesus and who want to worship Jesus, it's not at all uncommon for couples who love Jesus to end up engaging sexually before they are married. And the reason I say that is not to say, hey, that's okay, or it's not a big deal, but just to say, hey, you're not alone. But here's why this matters. God has designed sexuality in such a way, and he's he's designed sexuality for such a place in the context of marriage. So here's what ends up happening. So a a, a man and woman they, they like each other a lot and they end up sleeping together and they're in a relationship and things are going well, or at least it seems like things are going well. But here's what ends up happening. I know this from experience and I know this from counseling with a whole lot of people who are walking through this season of life. Here's what, here's what happens a, a guy and a girl end up sleeping together. They're sleeping together. They love Jesus. They want to worship Jesus. They're hoping someday to get married, but they're still sleeping together. This is what ends up happening. There is now a gap between their level of intimacy, and their level of commitment. There is a gap between their level of intimacy and their level of commitment. And in that gap, in that gap, all kinds of really unhealthy things begin to fill up that space. First and foremost, insecurity. Along with insecurity comes all sorts of of potentially self-destructive behaviors. None of it leads you to being closer to the person that God has called you to be. In that gap, we will fill that gap with all sorts of destructive things. But more than anything else, in that gap, there becomes a lack of trust. There's now a trust gap in, in that relationship because there's a difference between the level of intimacy and the level of commitment. And as anyone who's ever been in a long relationship will tell you when there is a trust gap, trust gaps get larger and they become more destructive. Which leads that couple to be more and more likely to not end up together, to not have a successful marriage, to not have the blessing that God wants them to have and experience. And So when we talk about a Christian ethic for sexuality, do not hear me be judgmental. Do not hear me look down my nose at anyone. The reason we care about this, the reason that God cares about this, the reason that Paul is saying you've got to be different is because it is rooted not in us being better than anyone or us being more moral than anyone. It is rooted in us loving others better. Oftentimes, the church can be guilty of teaching people to pursue holiness rather than love. I promise you this, if you will pursue love, if you will grow in your self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial love, if you will grow in self-sacrificial love to those around you, you will grow in holiness. You will grow in holiness, as you grow in overflowing love. And so Paul is saying, look, I want you to grow in holiness. And so here's what's going on. You are Thessalonians. You are Thessalonians by culture. You are Thessalonians by people group. You are the people of Thessalonica. And I know what is common. I know what is culturally accepted in your community. And so I'm telling you, Be different. Be different so that you can love your community better. Be different so that you can be a people who demonstrate what love really looks like. We can't love self sacrificially if all we're chasing after is the same things that the world wants. But here's why I want to connect us to this idea of growing in our love rather than growing in holiness. Because if we pursue holiness, we won't get love as a byproduct. We'll get legalism as a byproduct. If your pursuit is for holiness first, you will end up in legalism you will end up like a Pharisee. You will be someone who's trying to get all of the law just right, which will mean you will be someone who is an expert at finding loopholes. If you pursue holiness first, you'll end up in an unhealthy place. But if you will pursue love, If we will be a people who pursue love, what Paul is making plain to the church in Thessalonica and what he is saying to us today is this, if we will pursue love, we will get a growth in holiness as a byproduct. Because as we grow in love, we will grow in holiness. But we've got to pursue love first. Because if we pursue love first, we're letting God transform us from the inside out. If we pursue holiness first, we're going to try really hard to change ourselves from the outside in. And it doesn't work that way. So here's maybe a better way for us to think about it. Here's maybe a healthier way, church, for us to think about what it means to be set apart, for us to think about what it means to truly be a people of holiness, Michael Horton said this once, and I love this quote. He said, the proper focus of holiness is not on being set apart from something, but on being set apart for something. The proper focus of holiness is not on being set apart from something, but on being set apart for something God is not here to create division between you and the rest of the world. God's not here trying to rip you, up, rip you apart from your community and family and friends and coworkers. God's trying to set you apart so that you can be light in the darkness. God's trying to set you apart so that you can live a different life in the presence of your family and friends and co-workers and classmates and neighbors. You and I have not been set apart from something. We are set apart for something. And so this is what I want to make abundantly clear to us today. We've been set apart for something. We've been set apart for something. So, what have you been set apart for? What have you been set apart for? Not what have you been set apart from, what have you been set apart for? What is the counter cultural way that God has set you apart to be a person of love, in integrity, in character, in the middle of your community? How has God set you apart to be a person for self-sacrificial love? How have you been set apart to be a person who stands for the dignity and value and worth of every man, woman, and child on the face of this planet? God has called us to holiness, but if we chase holiness first, we will always end up at legalism. We will always end up trying to fix the outside. But if we'll recognize that God has set us apart for love, if we will pursue love first, you and I will be transformed from the inside out, and we will grow in holiness. Church, we've been set apart for something and it's time that your family and your friends and your classmates and your neighbors and your coworkers it is time that they know what you've been set apart